Hello again, everybody, from the United States Border Patrol Academy. This is What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that matter to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their family, and those we serve. And I got to tell you, one of the neatest aspects of this job, being the chief of the academy, is some of the people I get to meet and talk to. We have visitors that come through these gates all the time that just have amazing stories. They're amazing people in their own right. And today is no exception. We're blessed to have a retired chief of the United States Border Patrol, Michael J. Fisher, here with us today. He was just talking to Class 1160. Chief, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me, sir. So what do you think so far? It's been a few years since you've been back through these uh, through these gates. Uh, how did it feel? A little nostalgia? Extremely so. And it never, it never gets old, no matter how frequent I would come when I was the chief. And uh, even coming back now after a few years, it's just amazing the honor and the tribute that institutionally is kept in getting better each and every year, and certainly that's a testament to your leadership, too. So most of us know who you are, but for the benefit of those that are, that are listening that might not have been in the patrol or just joined us here recently, you're one of the longest-serving chiefs of the United States Border Patrol for the better part of six years. That's correct. From 2010 to 2015. The end of 15, yes. And you actually joined the United States Border Patrol in 1987? Yes, sir. Okay. Class 208. And I know I asked you this before, but you did have a, uh, a class chant. And did you have time to think about it, see if you could recall it? Uh, I did, and I haven't. <laughs> That's okay. You're not alone, and you're, not, not, you're in good company. But in your class, in class 208, so we graduated class 1160 today, so we're pushing up on that 1,000 mark for you uh, that, that comes through and, and graduates. You still keep in touch with some classmates? I do. And, and I had to think about it because it's been a while since I've actually talked to a member of the class 208. Most of them, if not all of them, um, have since retired. But I can remember throughout my career uh, watching the class. My class, there were six of us who did not go to San Diego back in 1987. Pretty much everybody uh, back then was going being assigned to the San Diego sector. But there were six of us in the class that were really tight because we went to the Tucson sector. Uh, my roommate wasn't my tutor in, in in Spanish as a native speaker. Um, he and I went on and, and worked in Douglas. Uh, he went through Vortex selection as well. Um, I'd known him for many years, and he's probably the last one that um, I, I somewhat talk with. He is also retired, and um, and he's he's doing some work uh, uh, against you know bad people and bad things as well. So. Um, but I still keep in touch with a few of them. And, of course, you've stayed in orbit around the Border Patrol. You're a member of the Border Patrol Foundation's uh, board. That's and correct. It, so it, it always amazes me. I think it's something that's really, really great that you have people that, even after retirement, uh, this organization, this Green Family, means so much to them that they, they don't separate from it. They, they stay in touch as right. best they can. And you volunteered your time to come up here and speak to Class 1160 along with Chief Gloria Chavez from the El Paso sector. You were her special guest. And I got to think it does something for you to be able to stay connected and see what this organization that you led for so long is becoming and, and will become. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, even if I wanted to, I don't think I could just, you know, wake up one day and, and forget um, how the organization and the mentors that I had had shaped who I be later became in my career. And, and, and for me, even when I retired, it, it just something I just couldn't shut off. Matter of fact, when I started thinking about my next transition out of government, um, although I retired from government, I was transitioning into a, uh, a private sector, I, I really thought long and hard about what I wanted to do. And one of the things that I felt strongly about was continuing to be able 
to give back to the organization somehow from the business standpoint. Although I was uh, recruited to do other things with other companies and businesses, I really wanted to have the degree of flexibility to pick and choose those things which I believe were going to help support the men and women in the mission, which was the reason why I created Scorpion Security Services, because it gave me that freedom to be able to pick and choose and say no to things, um, regardless of the compensation, because I didn't believe uh, whatever product or service that uh, was available was going to be, be beneficial. So, and, and then certainly when the uh, Border Patrol Foundation had asked if I would serve on the board, um, and, and I said, well, absolutely. And then they called back and said, oh, yeah, by the way, our treasurer is leaving uh, to get married, so we don't have a treasurer. Could you take on the treasury duties? There's those numbers um, again. And there it is. <laughs> and um, it was the biggest bait and switch that I've ever seen. But I was, I was pleased uh, to be able to do that as well. And I, I'm, I'm, I still honored to continue to serve the foundation yeah. as we continue uh, to, to generate the resources that are required to help continue to support the Border Patrol families. So I bring that up because your introduction to the Border Patrol is, is relatively commonplace. You have folks like us that come from not the border area and just happened to stumble across the Border yeah. Patrol. Tell that story. You told it last night and I thought it was really neat. So I was uh, 23 years old. I was in college. I was just finishing up a two-year internship with the district attorney's office. My goal and going into a pre-law criminal justice program in college was to go to law school. Uh, I spent two years, my uh, junior and senior year, at a basement uh, of the district attorney's office uh, writing case briefs, um, bored out of my mind, thinking, oh my gosh, here I am coming up towards the end of my college and I don't want to be a lawyer, right? But I was reading a lot of police reports and so I, I, I scrambled, um, had an interview. There was an FBI agent who came on campus, interviewed, and said, hey, uh, did really good on in the interview, but by the way, we're only hiring Chinese linguists and accounting majors. Um, so I didn't know what I was going to do. And he said, well, just get into another federal law enforcement program. You can always transfer over. It's easier once you get in the federal system. So I did that. That was back in 1986. I sent out letters to every federal agency, U.S. Marshal Service, the Customs Service, DEA, um, whatever I could find in, in a local library. Um, and then I graduated college, went home, and uh, received a trifold in an envelope. Um, it wasn't, you know, thank you for wanting to serve the country. Thank you for your interest in the United States Border Patrol. It was just a trifold. Um, and I would have normally thrown it out, but the, the front picture intrigued me. I, I saw uh, what later was Border Patrol agents in uniform, green uniforms, on ATVs and horsebacks. And as I read the information, um, I, I automatically thought, well, this is something I would really enjoy doing. Um, and since I didn't get anything else in the mail, I decided that I was going to take a shot uh, and try to push out of my comfort zone and go into an area that was totally unfamiliar to me. I, I didn't have any exposure to a law enforcement community, uh, not in the family or not in any friends. And so for me, um, it was kind of a, I guess, a leap of faith, if you will. Mm. And, um, and I just had a sense that this may be something worth trying. And, uh, and you went from that. You went from, you, you started when you were 23 years old. And so you went from being in Pittsburgh to receiving a trifold snail mail regular envelope, not email. This is back in, you know, yes. and you got that and thought it looked good. So you gave it a shot and you applied to fast forward 30 years later, you're commanding this entire organization that's grown to about 25,000 employees, a budget of $3.5 billion. 
And I might add, during a time, a pivotal time in our agency's development. We, you know, coming on the heels of 9-11 and what CDP and the Department of Homeland Security would become, you played an integral role in all of that. What a twisted path life has dealt, right? Oh, clearly, clearly. And, and it's only upon reflection and the way that you put it, um, does anybody realize that? Because, and, and you can appreciate this, what, what you're doing in the moment within the patrol, regardless of if you're a, a frontline agent patrolling the river or if you're hiking in the mountains or you're a first-line supervisor or agent in charge, chief in the field or chief of the border patrol, you're not thinking about the enormity at times of what the challenges are. It's probably a defense mechanism because had I known as I was going up that that's what I would have had to confront, I would have slowed it down or said no to a lot of things that, that I ended up saying yes to because for me it, it was a challenge and I was honored to even be asked even though at the time I believed that I was not ready for that next promotion or I wasn't the person best suited to do X, Y, or Z. Um, it was those who perhaps recognized that I was ready for a position that I myself uh, found very difficult to to uh, to comprehend or accept. Um, but when you're doing that and you're recognizing the day-to-day -day importance of the mission um, and protecting this country and protecting the men and women, you really don't have time to think about how how it affects you, or you just have to you just have to be able to recognize that there are a lot of people counting on you. Um, and so for me, it was kind of a sense of importance. And I just wished each and every day when I was putting on my uniform that I would make the decisions and, and not let them down to, uh, to be able to continue the great tradition of this organization. So I'll tell you a little secret. I don't think that you and I have talked about this before. You know, I went through uh, Bortec Class 15. You were Class 5. So I very definitely knew who you were uh, coming up in the organization. But the first time I actually met you was in Tucson Sector when we were doing the very first uh, Operation Desert Risk, which turned into ABCI. And you were an assistant chief uh, under David Aguilar. Mm -hmm. And we spent, uh, my team spent the entire summer out there at the base of Abakivri and working in cells on the Tohono O'odham Reservation. And that was my first introduction to you. And I remember, uh, you know, it, it struck me how articulate and intelligent uh, you were. So it was no surprise to a lot of us that you went on to, to lead the organization. And I want to talk about what resulted from that in a second. But before we get there, I want to talk about your time with the Border Patrol Tactical Unit because you also joined that unit at a time when it was still a fledgling group. You were a class five that went through in 1990. It started in 1984. And you actually, during the war on drugs uh, in the Reagan era, uh, it's, and it was carried over, uh, you deployed to South America and did a lot of counter-narcotics operations that I don't think a lot of people know the Border Patrol, and specifically BORTAC, participated in. Can you talk a little bit about what that entailed? Sure. Um, it was interesting, too, to show you how, um, you know, some things perhaps change very slowly in this organization. At the time, I was stationed at the Douglas Station, and I had gone through the uh, SRT program, Special Response Team program, in the Tucson sector. And the, the cadre that trained me in that sector were uh, agents like Charlie Whitmire and Jeff Calhoun and Ron Colburn. And they had just gone through uh, BORTAC 4. And they came up to me, not, Ron Colburn was in BORTAC 1. 
And so Charlie came up to me, I remember, and said, hey, did you put in for Bortec? And I said, well, what is that? He said, well, the memo's been out for, you know, months now. And I said, well, the PIC doesn't post the memo, so um, I don't know anything about it. He said, I'm going to send you one. Um, you only have a couple of days to test because the testing's coming to an end. And so here I was. I had no idea what the unit was. If He, he said, you'll be good for the unit. And, and based on my respect for Charlie Whitmire at the time and the fact that I'd be able to continue my training in special operations, I put, it, I put a memo in, and uh, a day later, uh, I did the PT test. I did the firearms call. Um, I did the pre, pre, uh, prerequisites for it and then went on to the unit. Um, and, and just, uh, it, was, it was a really eye-opening experience for me. It, it pushed me beyond physical and mental limits, more so than I had encountered any time, either you know, uh, up until the point and including what I had to push through at the academy. Um, and I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about tactics, techniques, and procedures, and I knew that I still had a, a whole lot more to learn. And so for me, that opened up um, opportunities. You had mentioned the um, Operation Snowcap, Operation Cadence in, in, in South America. During the war on drugs, the United States was committed to help our foreign partners uh, reduce the flow of cocaine into the United States. So uh, we were deployed in, in the Chapari area, uh, base camp uh, in Bolivia um, for a while, um, help working with the National Police, the UMAPAR, to be able to identify, locate, and destroy cocaine labs, base labs, airstrips, um, and that was a, a rotation we did. I also had the opportunity after the Civil War ended in El Salvador, they needed to regroup with their government, they needed to reestablish a new national police force. So we were asked to come down um, for, uh, for a year on multiple deployments and basically do a basic training for the new police force that was going to be made up of uh, former guerrillas, former uh, military in, in El Salvador, and, and former police officers. Um, and so that, that was interesting. You know, we talked about language proficiency before, right? So it was the first time where I, I really had to up my game as it related to Spanish proficiency beyond what I was already doing within the Border Patrol because now um, as one of the lead instructors uh, and team leaders for, for the teams going down, we had to develop on our own the curriculum. We had to do the translation in, in the Spanish. And we had to teach the course um, in Spanish and... Um, and so that, that put me in a, a very uh, uncomfortable position, which in hindsight, as we had discussed with the, with the class this morning, um, was probably one of the better opportunities that I had as well. And there's a, a lot of other missions that um, I had the opportunity uh, to go on. But what I remember most of the Border Patrol agents um, and, the, and the BORTAC agents that I had trained with, I had deployed with, in, in every situation, um, you know, we talked with the agents this morning uh, about how important it is to maintain their, their, their proficiencies at all level, never become complacent, um, because at the end of the day, it's only them and their partners. And the Border Patrol agents, oftentimes, in these situations, it's the only thing that they can rely on. And, and it's so true, and you know this uh, from, from being in, in, in BORTAC and in BORSTAR, um, you, there's a degree of bonding that, that, that lasts beyond the uniform. Right. I mean, there are there are still there are BORTAC agents that I have worked with um, that still we email uh, on a frequent basis. We still talk about um, and joke and laugh about, you know, 
and tell lies about what we did and how great we were. So I mean, that's that's part of the tradition as well, and, and that's something that uh, that keeps me going. Well, and and then fast forward to today. So today we have the special operations group that encompasses not only the BORTAC unit, but the Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue Team, BORSTAR, and a little team you might be familiar with called the Mobile Response Team. Right. I believe you had just a little bit to do with that coming into existence as well. Uh, there, there, there was a lot of agents where we were trying to solve um, a very challenging problem um, in San Diego, and uh, the Mobile Response Team was born out of uh, a session that we needed to solve a problem, um, and it was created specifically for that for that reason. And I can tell you that is for me one of the neatest teams that the Border Patrol has because it is just good, hard-charging Border Patrol agents that want to be where the action is all the time, and will get out there and work the long hours and do the job. Uh, when I was the patrol agent in charge of SOD, the Special Operations Detachment mm-hmm. in the Rio Grande Valley. I would say I came to depend on that team more than any other because yeah. they and they were out there. They were they were seasoned uh, narcotics. They were arresting people just just right and left, and uh, became very fond of it. And, and today that that team has grown to multiple sectors along the southwest border and on the northern border as well. And in my mind, are some of the most dedicated agents out there. Well, the other thing it did um, for me, Chief, and and this and this was a conscious decision when when we stood up the team is I always wanted to provide, wherever my command was, I always wanted to provide opportunities that not everybody would gravitate to, but a small percentage would need in their careers. And if those opportunities weren't provided, those that were destined, although they didn't know it at the time, destined for leadership. um, And if you didn't provide them those areas to push through their comfort zone, nobody else would. And so not only did a unit like the MRT, as an example, solve a a tactical problem and and an operational gap that we had at the time at the sector, it also provided a mechanism for other aspiring agents to look up and say, someday I want to be able to do that. Um, And but I think Bortac, you know, today still does the same thing. It, it's not for everybody. It was was not supposed to be for everybody. But for those um, experiences and those agents who have gone through those experiences and now are in leadership position, positions, um, I, I think in many respects, when I look back on it, without those experiences, um, I don't know that I would have ever you know, uh, promoted through the organization the way that I did um, because it was those those opportunities and well, people that believed in me. And, and thank goodness for those experiences because you were kind of thrust into these leadership roles, especially after 9-11 and when CBP, the Customs and Border Protection, our parent organization, was stood up. You became the deputy director of the Office of Anti-Terrorism right. from the field. They pulled you up and you helped stand that uh, that office up for CBP. And of course, it morphed into several other things down the road and has continued to grow. And then you were called up by Chief David Aguilar at the time, who was going to be the acting deputy commissioner for you, as you said earlier, to, to mine the store, so to speak. Yeah. Talk about that, because that, that's that, I, I laughed whenever you were uh, when you were telling what your expectations were and what it turned into. Right. So before I, I, I get to there, I have to actually take a couple of steps back, because um, I don't know that you and I have ever d- discussed this. What, when I tell people towards the latter part of my career, I think the last, you know, four or five positions that I held in the Border Patrol, I never put in for, right? I, I was I was told you're going to be here and there. Um, and the first time it ever happened, it was a shock to me. Um, 
I was in Washington, D.C. Again, this, this was probably in, in this, uh, on my return back from the Office of Anti-Terrorism. Uh, while I was there, I was selected as a division chief for the intelligence. And, and, and so the Border Patrol, because they were building a command and control, was building a whole new organization. So we were going from less than 50 FTEs to over 200 FTEs, and we had to operationalize that while these threats were happening. And as it turned out, um, I was uh, in charge of the intelligence section. And so one day, the uh, deputy chief at the, uh, the Border Patrol called me in his office and says, hey, I just um, want to let you know that uh, uh, the chief wants to congratulate you this afternoon for putting in for the deputy chief in San Diego. Now, I've been in the Border Patrol long enough at that point to realize there's somebody messed up, man, because I didn't put in for the Border <laughs> Patrol deputy chief in San Diego. I'm just starting this new thing in, in Washington, D.C., um, and... Uh, and so I was like, oh, this is going to be an embarrassment. How would I tell the chief, you know? And so I told the deputy, I said, I said sir, there's, there's got to be a mistake. Um, just so you know, uh, I didn't put in for the, the deputy chief in San Diego. Um, and I expected him to say, oh, thanks for telling me. We'll, we'll keep this off the chief's radar. I'll get to the bottom of this. Go back to your intel, and we'll talk later. But without missing a beat, uh, and he, he, he looks across his table and he looks right in my eyes and he said, he said, Mike, you're at the point of your career where these decisions are taken out of your hands. Do you understand that? And at that point, <laughs> I, I do said, now. yes, sir. <laughs> and as I'm walking back to my office in Washington, I'm trying to figure out how am I going to tell my wife that I'm interviewing for a position and I didn't discuss it with her beforehand. And then I figured, oh. I'll never get the position, right? Um, I don't even know who the chief patrol agent is. Um, so that that was one. But uh, on it was in 2009 on Christmas Day. Uh, mem remember it vividly. Uh, I was in the car. I was driving with the family. I get a call from uh, David Aguilar. Uh, he was the chief of the Border Patrol at the time. Um, and I remembered seeing earlier where Abdul Muttalib was coming in final approach in Detroit and he tried to light himself on fire. Um, interestingly enough, CBP and DHS had targeted him um, as a potential terrorist. He was flagged. All the protocols were put in place for the counterterrorism secondary within CBP. Um, the FBI was notified. Everybody was waiting for this plane to land. That was the, at the time, that was the threat stream. That was the method of operations. That what the government was ready to absorb. Um, and all of a sudden, they realized there was a there was a security gap. Uh, the intent and capability had had changed. There were some leadership changes. Uh, and uh, on that Christmas day, David explained to me that I'm going to be moving down to the front office um, as the acting deputy commissioner. I need you to come up um, as a chief. And uh, and I don't remember the words exactly. My impression when I hung up the phone with him. Uh, it was like on a Thursday, Friday, I had to be there the next next Monday, was until they get this sorted out, since he has to move down to the fourth floor, he needs somebody to step in um, on the sixth floor. And I was obviously, I said yes. I, you, you know, I, I've never said no uh, to anything in the Border Patrol. I don't, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's just, <laughs> I just never said no to anything. Um, and I, I was there probably 30 days uh, until I realized in a discussion with David on a separate subject that I was in fact uh, designated as a new chief of the Border Patrol and I was up there uh, on a temporary assignment because of the current threat to the country 
Um, and they were in the process of setting my EOD for being the next chief. And of you the had board no control. idea. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and at that point, I, I, I realized that if I told him what I'm telling you now, they would have changed their mind <laughs> because this guy was so stupid, right? Um, he's coming up here, and how could he n not know that this was um, permanent? So I immediately changed my whole thought process. I've been in, act, in acting positions before, and, and I knew it was going to be short, short term. Um, again, not knowing I was going to be the permanent, but I, I really just wanted to, to, to manage um, and just try to hand off something that wasn't broken to the, uh, the new chief coming in. That was my intent. Well, when I found out uh, about a month later um, in February, March time period that I was going to be the chief and my uh, entry on duty was set for May, I had to really start really thinking about what I was going to be doing day in and day out. Um, and, and so for me, it was just, I don't know that I would, I would call it serendipity or if I would call it, um, it, it's just one of those things that happens. Um, I, I couldn't control it. David couldn't control it. The commissioner couldn't control it. Um, and the last thing I ever wanted to do in a situation where um, the, the Border Patrol is, is facing challenging times in areas where you can tell that nobody's really sure what to do. I mean, these threats, as they were migrating, um, you can just see the, 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 the fear and panic on, on people's faces, leaders' faces, because they were faced with something that they really weren't sure what to do for the first time in their professional career. When they ask for your help, there's no way that you can say no, right? Um, you have to be part of that, regardless of what the outcome. Um, and, 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 and for me, again, as I look back on it, it provided another opportunity um, to, to forget about, you know, how it was going to affect me, how it was going to affect my career, whether I was the right person for the job. Um, the mission was set. Um, I accepted it. And so I had, to, I had to retrain my brain to start thinking about what we needed to do at the institutional level. And so you're talking, you, you, just for everybody that knows, so you talk about the sixth floor versus the fourth floor. You're talking about the Ronald Reagan building, which is the headquarters for the United States Border That's Patrol right. and indeed CBP. And, and so had no idea, and, and there you sit as the chief of the Border Patrol. And, and you said something last night, again, made me laugh. You said, I got asked all the time by people, how do I become the chief of the Border Patrol? And you said, I have no idea. <laughs> it no, just it, happened. Yeah, it's, it's the truth. <laughs> and, um, and it was something, and, and I don't regret one minute of the leadership opportunities that the Border Patrol provided. But, you know, for the, for the first 10 years, um, I, was, I was having a blast being a Border Patrol agent and, and doing special operations. As a matter of fact, I, I had, did not aspire to be a, a supervisor. I didn't aspire to be the chief. Matter of fact, my encounters with the chief patrol agent in any sector was so minimal. I knew they existed. I barely ever saw them in you know, the first five years of my career. I saw the deputy chief a couple of times. That's a different story. It wasn't <laughs> my fault still. Right. Um, but I, I didn't aspire because I didn't know enough about those positions. I was still learning in my own mind, how I could better be a Border Patrol agent. Um, and so there was not this, you know, charting of career paths and thinking th things through. It was swept up. Um, I'll give you another good example. I was a field operations supervisor for, for the Border Patrol Tactical Unit. I wanted to get back to the field. I wanted to get back as an FOS to Tucson or, or some large sector. And lo and behold, the commander of the BORTAC unit became the chief in Detroit. And he had called me one day and uh, he said, hey, listen, um, I want you to put in for the, the deputy chief in Detroit. I said, sir, with all due respect, 
I want to get back to the southern border. He said, have you ever, have you ever interviewed for a position in the Border Patrol before? And I thought about it and I said, no. He said, I want you to put in, because I want to get you the experience to interview for a position in the Border Patrol. You have to be able to just go through that once. You're not the, 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 the forerunner on, on the selection. Matter of fact, I have an idea on who that person is going to be, but I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity to interview. I said, well, well, in that case, okay. Sounds like a bait and switch to me. I put in for the position, <laughs> didn't tell my family. Um, uh, well, I, I told them this, this, this story. I said, by the way, I'm just going up for the interview. I'm not, um, I'm not the front runner. The, the commander, former commander, is giving me an opportunity to interview. Uh, so I fly up to Detroit. There's a panel interview at the time. Um, this was in 1998. You had uh, the chief of Detroit. You had the deputy director under the old um, INS structure. And you had a representative from headquarters Border Patrol. Did a panel interview. Um, uh, I studied, remember, you know, short-term memory stuff, statistics about, you know, the sector, and, and, and gave them my, you know, leadership philosophy, all the responses typically that one would go through in that interview. Um, got on a plane the next day, flew back uh, to Bortac. Three days later, I was on the uh, uh, shooting range. We were getting ready to do a Let's See class, law enforcement technical um, uh, uh, class, or LETAC, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for state and locals. And we we're going through the courses that we were going to run. It said, hey, chief, you got a call um, before cell phone. So I ran back to uh, the barracks, picked up the phone. Uh, uh, I, I, hey, sir, how are you? Hey, congratulations. You, you're now my new deputy. I need you here next week. Another one of those instances <laughs> where I just, I just didn't learn, right? And, and now not only do I have to try to scramble, I've got to now tell my family that um, I did, in fact, go to it, and it's not anywhere close to where they wanted to go. Um, it's actually going to be in Detroit. And so and every one of those stories, like I said, had put me in a position to overcome a lot of different adversity, not just in, I don't know anything about the northern border operations, right, um, and, or from a family perspective. So now what do you do when, when your family it says, well, we're not, we don't want to go to D.C. Or, or you promised us, you know, we were going to stay in San Diego or you did all that things. Kind of like what we were discussing with the class, you know, everybody throughout their career is going to make decisions. And throughout and every decision that you make, there's going to be consequences for that. I, have, I don't have any regrets for the decisions that I've made. Um, and as, as, as you have, have, have gone through, the, the more you promote uh, the more that level of res responsibility and those decisions that you make, the more impactful they are um, to you from a professional and a personal standpoint. And and that's something that I, I want to continue to give to the to the organization. Um, and I'm here talking to you about it as well. So that's it's important. That well, and that makes a, that. A, a great dovetail into this next piece because we saw the organization, we saw the United States Border Patrol mature and grow over the last 20 years. It was already, for all of us in here, was a great organization and, and, and always has been. But the environment changed, the threat changed, and so we had to change as well. And so in addition to just growing in general, our mission set grew. And I think back to when I joined, uh, and we talked about this before, you had Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Rio Grande, Operation Hold the Line, and a lot of those basically were focused on the forward deployment, the static positions that deter people from wanting to illegally cross the border in the first place. But really, in my mind, was the first stab at a 
comprehensive, coherent strategy by an agency. And that was carried forward in, by leaps and bounds by David Aguilar in 2004 when he came up with what we referred to as the resource-based philosophy, which was the right combination of personnel, technology, and infrastructure. And I believe the Border Patrol doubled in size during that time. And fast forward, under your command, you took it a notch further and came up with the risk-based philosophy, which was the, the Border Patrol strategy for 2012 to 2016. And therein we started seeing targeted enforcement, going after those that are responsible for the flow of illicit traffic across the border, not just the conventional side where we are interdicting the traffic coming across. That's a huge leap from here to there, and it, sh it really showed the maturity of the Border Patrol by thinking strategically and coming up with how we're going to approach the border environment and the threats that exist for years to come. Talk about that evolution and your involvement yeah. in it. Um, I had the opportunity uh, again in the 2000 and, 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 and four or five time period as, as we were developing the strategy, uh, that resource-based strategy, um, to sit around and say, okay, so um, you know, how should we develop, what should be the, the, the pillars of the strategy? Um, and, I, and I remember to this day the mission uh, as, as described in, in the strategy, gain, maintain, and expand operational control, utilizing the right combination of personnel, technology, and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Verbatim, if you didn't know it, we, we, pr we provided cards mm -hmm. for Border Patrol agents to keep in their pocket because we were going to continually make sure that the, everybody understood what that was. Um, there were a couple of challenges with that, which we didn't recognize <coughs> until later. It was always control of the border. And then when people outside the organization were defining what control meant, it was different than what we had intended it to mean. And so to differentiate from everybody else describing it as either sealing the border or, well, how, the, how do you know when the border is going to be controlled? We came up with operational control, mm -hmm. as if to suggest that's our definition, um, and we're going to go ahead and, and define that and measure the extent to which we believe we're successful on our terms. And everybody else could argue whether that was right or not. And, and it, was, it was new about how we were going to do that. And I really wasn't sure. I, I, at that point, I was transitioning. Um, at, after the strategy was, was sent out to the field, um, I, I really didn't see a lot of the implementation, what, what the sectors did in response to the national strategy. When I went up back to San Diego as the deputy and then the chief, shortly thereafter, I had the opportunity to not only uh, visit the field and talk with Border Patrol agents in San Diego, but I, I traveled to San Diego or to uh, Tucson sector and Yuma sector, and, and I wanted to see, and everywhere I would go, Border Patrol agents were standing in what was called then the, the X. Um, so the implementation in some locations, and a lot of locations, ended up Border Patrol agents sitting in a fixed location for eight to ten periods without moving. And somehow the, the, the strategy and the implementation was we're going to deter people by our mere presence, right? And, and as I look at it um, over the last few years, even when it started, you had mentioned you know, El Paso and, and Operation Gatekeeper, Hold the Line, and Operation Gatekeeper in San Diego. We didn't deter anybody. We, we just pushed the traffic somewhere else. Right. Um, and so then I started thinking about, well, it's really great to use a term um, like deterrence. 
But what I would also, when we were looking at doing operations in San Diego at the, at the strategic level, I said, um, if you're going to have a strategic objective or you're going to have a goal, it has to meet three criteria. First and foremost, it has to be actionable. You have to be able to describe it so somebody can actually do it and implement it. The second thing, it has to be measurable. Because if it's not measurable, there's no way to know whether or not you are succeeding. And I said the third criteria, it has to be sustainable. So, so whether it's a funding issue, whether it's a personnel issue. So if we're going to set up, and what we did um, in 2004, we set up that we're going to deterrence was our objective. And it didn't meet any three of the criteria, nor did we define it philosophically to the field. And so they were left to their own devices and they said, okay, we're going to stop people here. Independent of the fact that in some of those locations, Border Patrol agents were watching as groups were going around them, and they were confident that somebody behind them in a, in a defense-in-depth posture was going to make the apprehension. Um, and so this was, this was built a, a couple of years, and it really hit home to me where we needed a strategic shift even before I started thinking about, oh, I'm the chief now, what am I going to do? And when I was the chief in San Diego, um, and by the way, when, when uh, I was assigned to San Diego from Intel, from, from headquarters, it was basically, hey, Chief, we're, we're, gonna, we're focused in Arizona. We're going to send you out to San Diego. San Diego has all the resources. It has the technology. It has the personnel. It has the most infrastructure in terms of fence and roads. Um, they were basically saying, Chief, we spent all this time fixing San Diego. We're sending you out there. Just don't screw it up, right? So <laughs> it, it was low risk to them. Just go out there. Um, you got 60 miles of border and, and go with it. I said, okay. So um, I was out there in San Diego. And then, as you well know, at the, end, at the end of each operational year, that the chiefs at the time would uh, have to get together at a chief's conference, and we would have to brief our area of operation about, you know, how we were doing. And, and back then, and still today to a large extent, in my opinion, the litmus test for success was apprehensions, hmm. right? And it just so happened, and I believe it was in 2008, I could be wrong on that, um, that all across the southwest border, the apprehensions, as compared to the previous fiscal year, were trending down, right? Except for one sector, and that was in San Diego. And so as a new chief having to go to my first chief's conference, I was getting calls like you used to get you know, when you did bad on your six and a half or 10, uh -huh. it's like, man, I really feel bad. What size shoe do you wear? Right? So I was, I was getting these calls because um, I was the new chief and they're saying, kind of saying, hey, you're the only one that is doing bad, right? Because your apprehensions are down. You're going to have to brief this. We're with you in spirit, right? Click. So I'm trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? How important is this? I mean, it can't be the end all to border security. Um, and so I thought about it and thought about it. And so it was my turn to brief get up on stage, all the slides are up. And all the slides, by the way, there were standard slides. Everybody got the same type of five slides. But the last slide at the end was, you know, how, how do you assess what you did? You know, kind of grade your own homework. And, and I had learned through that 2004, I had seen the implementation. I had started listening to the internal and external communications. And, and, um, and so when it came to me, and the slide went up, and, and you saw the chart with the apprehensions, you know, just spike. 
in San Diego in that one year. And it just so happened to coincide with the, the time I got there to the next year. Everything was going good. Fisher gets there and it goes up, right? <laughs> and so you can almost hear the, the hush in the room. Um, and so I go through this and this, this and this. And the, the last, and, and, and so here's, here's the data. Here are the facts. Deployments, personnel numbers, trends and flows, and our apprehensions are up. And, and so the chief at the time, David, asked me, he said, and chief, what do you attribute the increase in apprehensions? And the only thing that I had prepped for that made sense to me, that the institution would understand, as a young chief, I said, sir, the men and women of the San Diego sector have implemented the national strategy and have used the right combination of personal technology <laughs> and infrastructure um, to achieve operational control as measured by our increase in apprehensions, which caused our ability to increase more of those that cross through our sector, increasing our effectiveness. And he, and he said, okay, um, any questions? And I sat down and I had no idea what had just happened. <laughs> And I thought about it, and it because I, I, in preparation for that, I had to figure out how we were going to, in San Diego, how we were going to describe success. Um, and because we were, you know, we were tracking and we were looking at different variables other than, than apprehensions. The next year, what do you think happened? Our apprehensions went down. And so now <laughs> I did the same thing, went through the slides. Chief, to what do you attribute a reduction in your apprehensions this year to the previous year of increase in apprehensions. And not to be a smart aleck about it, um, but with sincerity, I said, Chief, uh, the men and women of the, the San Diego Sector Border Patrol applied the right combination of personnel, technology, and infrastructure achieving operational control as defined by a lack of uh, throughput and traffic resulting in a reduction in apprehensions. Which was true. The facts <laughs> bore that out, by the way. This wasn't a, a smoke and mirrors. Um, and the chief said, okay, anybody have any questions? It was at that point where nobody questioned me, where I realized as an organization, if we have an indicator for success and only one indicator for success, and, and we can articulate that if it either, either goes up or if it goes down, it's success, we're in trouble. Yeah. There's no way that we can continue to try to, let alone convince others, convince ourselves that we're, we know what we're doing when it relates to it. Because if we can't, measure the extent to which we're successful in a national security mission and then nobody else is going to do that so we need to really rethink how we're looking at uh, doing border security which was part of the reason for the shift in that strategy um, and it was and the reason why we shifted our GEPRA the Government Performance and Results Act which historically had been apprehensions uh, ever since I came in the Border Patrol we shifted that and we changed it to the interdiction effectiveness ratio, which was one indicator of 12 that matched the new ways that we were going to answer that question and measure it. And no more was it just going to be up to uh, somebody's intuition on whether they thought the border was secure or not. So let me just break it down for the, for the layperson there. We had never, as an agency, even thought about how we measured whether or not we were doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And your example shows that uh, we could say we were doing a good job whether the arrests were up or whether they were down because we had never really given it much thought. And so we're trying to hone in on how are we telling the American people yeah. if we're doing a good job or not. And that's where this next evolution, this interdiction effectiveness ratio and leading into the risk-based philosophy right. kind of started to take us in that direction. No, you're absolutely right. And, and as we started you know, broadening the discussion uh, first internally within the organization, um, it's been my experience 
that when you're going to make a strategic shift or, or make an impactful change into something that an organization has done for a very long time, um, you, you're going to get a lot of resistance uh, because of the fear of change, right? That comfort area. And so the first thing I needed to do was just have this conversation with uh, peers of mine, other chiefs, and, and have a real honest discussion about we need to do better as an organization, as a group. And, and all of you that were around that table at the time um, had to be honest with ourselves that we could not continue down the road that we were. And we really needed to think through some hard um, problems and really come up with the best way to describe what a secure border was. Because simultaneously, when I was queuing uh, the oversight committees that we were doing a strategic shift and I wanted their input and also I wanted them time to absorb the fact that we were in the process of, of redoing a national security strategy. This was something I just, we as an organization just couldn't change overnight. Um, and you needed to be able to, to work with those groups and their staffs to have these conversations and don't, and, and, and kind of grow it so they become comfortable over time. And the other thing that we did is we brought in uh, members of industry, we brought in members of uh, community groups to sit in strategic sessions and think these things through to help um, alleviate the shock of change that they were about to see, whether it was a, a, you know, a, a sheriff in the field who's used to seeing Border Patrol agents standing you know, at the post all the time, or a rancher who was used to having Border Patrol agents posted um, uh, in, in, you know, in, in their backyard, all of that was going to change. And so as, as we're going through this, this honest uh, assessment, and, and by the way, uh, I had asked the, the team to really think about how we were going to define uh, a secure border. I also recognized that I needed Congress because at the time they were still dabbling back and forth on comprehensive immigration reform. Um, I think to the, the summer of 2010, we received our last supplemental, and, and I think 13 was kind of the, the shortest period, the last-ditch effort for them to do that. They, uh, they, they would not uh, or could not define what a secure border looked like. And so we got to the point where we had to we were going to implement the new strategy. We'd done this, all this internal messaging. We, we were getting um, buy-in, and so we identified it. And one of the key pieces that we did, because it's, it's not just one thing, right? People want to just make it very simplistic. Um, people didn't want to let go of, of apprehensions. And I, and I used to use this analogy when I would go to musters. And one of the, the, the congressional testimonies that, that, that I did, this was after a, a GAO audit. And I remember the, the auditor and, and, and during the hearing, and I was, I was friends with him. Um, I didn't always agree with, with his recommendations, but for the most part, he was fair. And he said one thing at the hearing about the organization. This was early, like one of the first congressional testimonies that I did where apprehensions was still, you know, the, um, the, the hen that laid the golden egg. You know, everybody was just, well, what are your apps this year? Are they up or are they down, right? And, and he had been studying the Border Patrol and doing assessments um, for a while. And he said at this hearing, uh, I think it was the House Homeland Subcommittee, uh, Maritime and Border Security. And the, the hearing was about how do you measure border security? Matter of fact, the chairwoman at the time asked me what I wanted the hearing to be about, and I said, I want it to be about this. I want to open up a broader discussion. And so the hearing was about how do you determine the extent to which the border is secure. 
And so this uh, GAO guy said, and he looks at me, you know, there's just two of us on the panel. And he looks at me and he says, Chief, he said, the Border Patrol is like, um, you know, I'm, I'm asking for your batting average and you're just giving me your hits. The, the, the Border Patrol, Chief, I need more than your hits. I need your at-bats. And then, you know, then the question then went on. And I started thinking about that. And I'm thinking, what does this baseball analogy have to do with the problems that we're trying to solve? And it dawned on me that, that, that we were just telling people how many people we apprehended, how much narcotics we seized. Not how many that got away. Had nothing to yeah. do with the volume or the threat. It was, and, and when we started you know, talking about why the threat, we had to really focus on a risk-based approach is because you couldn't be everywhere at all times, then how then were we going to prioritize areas that we were going to focus and areas that we're not going to focus? And, and it wasn't just about the geography. And, and geez, you know, don't these transnational criminal organizations now teamed up with um, uh, potential terrorist groups, as the July 2011 National Security Report suggested? We need to start thinking about these these smugglers not as mom and pops like when we came in the patrol that are just doing it locally. This is this is organization. They're running us like a business, and we have to change the way that that we're going to attack this problem, or we're never going to win. And so, when I started trying to explain, so how do I bring this to the workforce? So I I, I started the messaging, and I would talk with border patrol agents, the leadership, and we kind of go through this, and they're like, okay, yeah, I understand that. Um, they said, well, what does it have to do with border security? I said, um, I said, let me tell you a quick story. I, I, uh, when I played college football, I was a running back, and I had a, a head coach who just never liked to throw the ball. I mean, all he did, um, 95, 98% of the time was run the ball. So much so that the teams that we played had scouted us so much that they always put eight to nine players on defense in the box, which meant there's at any given time, there's at least two or three defensive players who are left unblocked and are just killing me every play. And so game after game, you know, and obviously you can imagine with a philosophy like that, it just, um, even back in the, in the 80s, um, that wasn't a really good philosophy. <laughs> so I felt bold one practice, and I went up to him and I said, I said, Coach, I said, listen, I'm getting killed. I said, why don't we throw the ball? And, and I remember his remark, and, he, and, and obviously this wasn't a teaching moment for, for, for Fisher. He grabs my <laughs> face mask, and he pulls me close, and he says to me, and he's spitting through my face mask, Fisher, there's three things that happen when you pass the ball, and two are bad. Now get back into the huddle. And he pushes me back. And I had no idea what that meant. So then I'm starting to think about it later. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, well, I understand that, right? You know? And then it dawned on me. This was something like, you know, when, when you're sitting around trying to figure out how you, you know, pull together the, the smart people for a strategy. I started telling Border Patrol agents. I said, you know what? I said, there are generally only three outcomes when anybody comes across this border illegally, right? One is they're going to be apprehended. And that's a good thing. The number two, they're going to come across and they're going to realize for whatever reason they're not going to make it. And they're going to turn around and they're going to go back into Mexico. And that too, from our standpoint, is a good thing. Remember the new CBP mission? Remember our new, our, 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 our 2012, what we're trying to shift to? That is no threat by somebody coming in, right? Um, well, Chief, what about deterrence? And I said, first of all, you can't you can't have a strategy or a, or a mission objective. I talked about the criteria before, because how do you know if you achieve it? How do you count 
how, how many how many people did you deter this 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 you know past year? I have no idea. Well, it's easy if if the person if there's a person standing one foot um, across the international boundary and you're observing them. Now you can you don't know for certainty, but there's probably a good chance that that person is going to wait for you to leave because their intent is to cross in the United States. Because when you look at deterring somebody, what you're basically trying to do is 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 know exactly what their intent is and their capability. And then you're going to assume that they're going to cross into the United States. And with that example, close to the border, I could probably get away with that. So how far back am I now going to start claiming deterrence? Right? Do I, if somebody is 10 feet from the border, can I still infer that, that they're probably going to come in? And, and in my end of the shift report, can I claim one person deterred? What about 25 feet? You see where you go. At what point are then you collecting quote-unquote data? Um, it's it's a, it's an unattainable objective in in my opinion. So we had a you don't attain. Now you can do it as a byproduct if you're extremely extremely uh, successful in specific areas, and, and we see that today in, in some of these border areas where you have primary fence, you have uh, uh, systems that are on the border that will let you know even on the approach when people are coming. And, and so the smuggling organizations as a business have decided it's too costly, we're not going to cross here. And so you have really deterred them from crossing in that area, not crossing the whole border. So it does make some sense from a strategic standpoint, but you can't hold it up as an objective. And the third outcome of somebody attempting to come into the United States uh, is that they get away from us. Mm -hmm. Right? Either we see them or we don't see them, but they ultimately get away from us. And so those are the three. And if, so if there was a way that we could, to the best of our ability, right? We're not, this was, you know, we, the message was we cannot make perfect the enemy of good here. In the absence of any other alternative that makes sense outside of the current status quo, which we all agreed, by the way, at some point, collectively, that apprehensions in and of itself were not serving the interests of, of not only the organization's interests, but the national security interest. And we were then going to embark on something new with these 12 um, risk indicators and metrics, one of which the interdiction effectiveness rate. Then we needed to internally, because I would, to this day, I would put um, my money on Border Patrol agents trained to the best of their ability to tell me how many people came in last night, and of that number, how many were arrested, how many were turned back, and how many got away? Recognizing the fact that if somebody got away, um, nobody was going to be uh, demoted. There was not going to be disciplinary action. Um, because if you do that, no one's going to report it, right? And it was kind of like the, the, uh, the snickering about, well, yeah, we didn't have anybody come through this area because our golf numbers, our gotaway numbers were, were way too high, right? We, you have to be able to trust the people, you have to be able to support them, and until you know the extent of the problem, you have to be able to collect the data and take a look at it. And so this this would be a common problem for any law enforcement organization. Oh, absolutely. If, you, if you had a, uh, a municipal police department, they may have a large number of DUI arrests, but their objective is not to see how many arrests they make, it's to try and keep the community safe by bringing the number of drunk drivers on the street down. Right. Well, if you're not even measuring that or capturing that or tracking that, how do you know if you're successful or not? And that's right. essentially what we were faced with is, and you can, say, you, can, you can draw the same conclusion here, our apprehensions right now are through the roof compared to what they have been in times past, 
Well, does that mean that we're securing the border? Or does that mean there's some other dynamic at play that's simply driving that particular factor, that variable, up? Sure. So that's been the conundrum. It's a very complex environment, the border environment, and how we define how good a job we do at border security and how that applies to national security. And so you played a very big role in that aspect of it, and it's still an evolution uh, process today, I would say. Mm -hmm. You also did something else where you, as I said before, went to targeting those that are responsible as well as doing the conventional interdiction frontline operations. Right. And that's where the corridors and the Joint Task Force West, uh, they were actually born off of this, uh, this concept. And that was another evolution for the Border Patrol because we were not just out on patrol in green and whites anymore. We were partnering with investigative partners. We were mapping and identifying the network, our adversary, and doing what we could to uh, disrupt, degrade, and dismantle the organization as a business, as you right. said. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that and how that morphed into uh, part of our mission. When I look back on it, um, there were certain periods throughout my career where there was a forcing function that made me stop admiring a problem too long and forced me to make a decision and move and act. And and what had happened, and I remember vividly, it was in 2010. Now remember, we're still thinking about strategy, we're thinking about these um, you know, metrics and everything. And I remember walking in, a uh, new commissioner at the time, Alan Burson, he, there's a staff meeting, you've been in, in the commissioner's uh, conference room on the fourth floor, long table, very executive, um, all the assistant commissioners around, all the backbenchers, and here the commissioner is gonna lay out his vision, intent, for CBP for the coming year, for 2011. And um, and he comes in and everybody's waiting, right? There's been no leaks, everybody's like, you know, what part am I gonna play and everything else. And um, and I remember he, he, he looks at everybody, he pounds the table. And he said, CBP has two priorities this year. We're gonna fix Arizona and a border patrol is gonna tell us where the next Arizona is gonna be when it moves. And everybody looked around and and so the, the, the and then the staff meeting continued with other business. And, and then the question was like, well, how are we going to fix Arizona? What does that even mean, right? Because up <laughs> until that, in 2011, you remember, yep. they, they had been entrenched uh, for 11, 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and they weren't moving. Matter of fact, they were setting up shop in the West Desert. And it was one of the hardest areas, um, you know, organization we've had been able to, to unroot. Uh, somebody, well, just do what you did, you know, in San Diego. Uh, totally different. 60 miles of border versus 260 mm -hmm. miles of border, right? How do you, the, the terrain's different. I mean, it's not that simplistic to, for those um, outside the organization. And so, uh, so we w had two challenges in front of us. One was fixing Arizona. So then we worked to, to define specifically what uh, that meant for the commissioner and how we were going to execute against that and, and the timeline that it was given. But the one that really um, was was troubling me was how do we predict the next one? I mean, our organization, if nothing else, has been very good at responding after the fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got you know, remember when we had to shift resources from one to the other, and you know, we had this. I used to call it with with the uh, leadership the firehouse mentality. There's nobody more uh, ready, willing, and able. So when that alarm goes off, we're going to re respond to that area and put the fire out. Now we're being asked to prevent the fire. And only that to tell us where the next fire is going to be to prevent it. And so we started thinking around. And so um, I remember, so I, what I do when I'm, when I'm, 
you know, going through a, a challenging uh, problem definition, problem solving exercise, I just leave it to the smart people in, in, the, in the organization. And I said, okay, I want independently, I want this group to do, uh, uh, to do this, do this. And I want you guys to come back to me with one slide that's going to convince me using hard data. I don't want your gut feelings. I don't want, um, I, I, I think this is gonna happen. I, don't, I, I want some, because if you explain to me where it's gonna go, be able to back it up. And I wanna, I wanna see the data. I don't want the, the methodology that you're using in your interpretation and the analysis of the data to convince me that where you say the traffic's gonna go uh, next year is gonna be right. Um, and they all went off. And the three different groups, working independently, because I didn't want any cross-pollination, right, came back to me, and, and these charts and graphs were like, and I gave them, I think, like 30 days. I wanted to give them enough time, but I, there wasn't, there was, we couldn't admire this problem for like six months, right? right. Um, this was something we couldn't outsource, um, uh, even if we could afford it, because it was too complex, and nobody could have really thought about this than the smart Border Patrol agents. And, and, and when I got the briefings, um, these, the, the, they couldn't have been different. You, I had arrows going from Arizona back to El Paso, Arizona to Del Rio, and then different colored arrows coming over here. And all three of them were totally different. Um, they were using different data sets and they, they, they weren't really sure, but the, the graph looked really cool to them. I'm like, I, this is not a smoke and mirrors contest, people, yeah. we gotta think about it. So let's think about what information do we have that we're currently not looking at? There were, there were two in particular, long story short, um, in a very short period of time. I said, well, um, if, if these organizations, as we now are, you know, our hypothesis is that these organizations are operating like a business, where are they going to operate along the southwest border? And, and what indicators could we look for? Um, because even back then, uh, individuals seeking to enter illegally between the ports of entry we're not making that decision. You know, it's true, they're making the decision to enter, but they were not making the decision where and when they were going to enter. Right. right? That decision was taken out of their hands years ago, um, not like when you and I came in. And so we said, well, if they're going to make a business decision, um, like most businesses, they want to be successful, they want to minimize risk. What would if if and so we'd start doing some red teaming. If we were going to be doing that, we would want to go to where the path of least resistance. Well, how do we know what the path of least resistance is? And by the way. How do we know when they've made that shift from Arizona, right? So the first thing we have to figure out is, is when that shift is, is going to occur. Because it doesn't happen overnight. It may happen fast, but there are leading indicators that we can really start looking and analyzing to say, I think they've started the move and they're shifting, and then try to figure out you know, where they're going to shift to. And so one of the things that we looked at, which we had available to us all the time in the, in, in the information that we had collected but never analyzed, was um, recidivism. And so the extent to which individuals are, have been arrested um, more than one time. And so we took a look at, well, we're across the Southwest border. Are we seeing the lowest rate of recidivism? And so we compared, you know, sector to sector to sector. And lo and behold, Rio Grande Valley at that time, 2010, 2011 time period, had the lowest rate of recidivism. Um, and then it was brought to my attention, yeah, well, Chief, they have, you know, they historically always get more OTMs because, you know, here's the map. They're closest to Central America, the pathway. Mm -hmm. Because of proximity, the vast majority of their apprehensions are other than uh, Mexican nationals. And 
So they're not being voluntary returned. They're getting an A file. And so we would expect that the recidivism would be low. Matter of fact, it's been like that for years, too. I said, well, that makes sense. But what was um, the demographics of apprehensions um, last year from, uh, from the previous year? And so we had this discussion about take a look at the data and see what it says. Well, lo and behold, although that statement had been true for a number of years, at the time when we ran the data for the last two years, the percentage of other than Mexicans within the Rio Grande Valley sector was less than 30%. So it was not the overwhelming majority, um, but the real uh, indicator for us that said um, this, is, this is where they're going and the, the TCOs have already made this decision was one of the um, metrics which was average weight procedure. And so remember, we go back to Border Patrol. I mean, when I came into Border Patrol, it was really easy. You catch more people, you seize more dope, your sector's going to get a lot more money, and the station's going to get a lot more toys. And so it was get as much as you can all the time. And, mm -hmm. and that was easy for me to understand. Just continue to do it, right? No uh, talk about outcomes versus uh, outputs. It was just go and get as much as you can. Um, and so... And when, I posed a question um, after doing some research. I posed a question to the chiefs during one of the, the strategy sessions we had. And I said, um, I said, across the southwest border, I said, who has led the, the nation year after year in total seizures by tons, right? Um, total seizures by weight uh, within the United States Border Patrol. Well, that was a gimme, right? Because Tucson, Tucson. Had, had, had led it um, uh, the whole time. And, and I said, okay, so... Uh, the answer to that was was right. So it was Tucson last year, and I said, "But but who led along the southwest border, along all of the um, nine border patrol sectors? Who led in the average weight procedure category?" And then we had a discussion about what that was, and then lo and behold, there wasn't even a close second. It was Rio Grande Valley, and and so we started talking about what that really meant, and then we had the discussion about the business, right? And so if a business is, is, um, wants to reduce risk, increase profits, they're going to go to an area where they're beating us, and, and we don't know it yet. Um, and, and the easy example is if, if I'm a plaza boss in, in an area and I have um, a, uh, a buyer, let's just say Dallas, and, and that buyer wants to uh, purchase 1,000 pounds of marijuana every month, I have a business decision to make um, whether I'm going to move one night, I'm going to move all 1,000 pounds, right? That's, that's one course of action. Um, and I can, I can do that if, if I'm, I'm very, I have a high probability of success because I know the operations, I know what their strength is on the Border Patrol, I know where they can go. And so, because I can move a lot more product with um, in, a, in a very uh, less risk, effort, less less effort, mm. and I'm not taking uh, very much risk. Um, or if I'm in an area where there's a lot of patrols, they've got the technology. My risk is a little bit higher. I want to hedge my bets, right? So I may break mm -hmm. that load down to 100 pounds or 200 pounds because I know at some point in that month um, I may have to run 10 loads. They may catch eight of them, and I can live with that, right? That's a price of doing business. Um, but I can't lose 1,000 pounds, right? And so when you think about that, 
uh, as, at that business model, in these organizations now looking at it and, and operating as businesses, it's, it, it's, it really makes sense why you would then not just look at how much weight or how much narcotics was seized. And we used, and, and I remember when I first suggested this and we talked it through, um, and just about everybody said, well, Chief, what about cocaine, right? And, and, I, and I said, well, the, the, the measure that we're looking at has nothing to do with the seizure itself. It's just a commodity that every cartel across the southwest border sure. is moving, right? It could be parrots. It could be right? people. If, yeah. it, it could be people. If they were moving it, um, so we have other indicators about, you know, marijuana versus cocaine versus heroin. But what we're trying to do is establish and understand the business models of these organizations. And so once we looked at the recidivism rate um, um, and then the, the, the very first one that really capped it off for us, that we thought we were onto something was another thing that, that we were capturing just by the mere fact of, of processing individuals. And this probably overwhelmingly, along with the average weight procedure, that gave us the confidence to move forward and, and tell the commissioner where it was going to go next was something which we ended up calling, for lack of a better term, first-time entrance, right? Mm -hmm. So because of uh, a U.S. visit and force at the time, um, it assigned a fingerprint identification number, a unique number, right, to individuals who had not been previously entered into the system. So you can assume that they haven't been encountered by the Border Patrol or OFO to Port of Entry illegally. So these are people that are coming in for the very first time. Um, and uh, they are being assigned a, uh, a FIN. Oh, and what we can do is we can, we can look at that over time and compare and contrast first-time entrants. Because if, if in fact, um, an organization is shifting from one location to the next, there should be a trend line that suggests that these first-time entrants are moving from one location to the other because a criminal organization has made a concerted effort to shift that. A shift, by the way, that operationally we may not see for months or even a year, but they've actually made that shift and they're slowly adjusting their operations. And if we don't figure that out, we're just going to be in the same position when we're overwhelmed, and now we're going to have to ring the bell, and then all the agents are going to have to then shift from one sector to the other, which we've done historically throughout my career. So the first-time entrance became really interesting, and lo and behold, again, no, no uh, close second on this, Rio Grande Valley at that time, for the last couple of years, were, was leading the first-time entrance, and, and they weren't, like we were talking about, um, when you look at recidivism, um, they were not. Um, OTM populations where you typically would see first times coming from Central and South America. Um, a lot of these were coming from uh, were Mexican nationals because it wasn't the people that were making the decision, it was the organization. So once we had first time entrance trending, uh, no close second across the southwest border, we had the average uh, uh, weight per seizure, no uh, close second uh, along the southwest border, we felt confident to say that, Commissioner, we believe we know where that uh, the next shift is going to be. Um, and, and that was, I mean, doing predictive analysis back then was very risky for, for a number of reasons. One is we weren't experts in it. We were just trying to make the case because nobody else in the government, because we'd asked, you know, it was one of my priority intelligence requirements, one of the first days when I was putting that intel uh, requirements package together for the intelligence community, is basically tell us, you know, where are our threats? What, what capability gaps um, do you see? Um, where uh, is the, um, where's the migration of those threats across the southwest border? 
and, and you know, not hearing anything back, we said, well, let's, let's see what we can put together for ourselves. So that really became the fundamental. And there was other metrics that, you know, really painted a mosaic um, for us to be able to say that, you know, which we believed. Because each one of those indicators and each one of, of the data sets that, that we, um, uh, the dozen that we picked for the strategy, we already had, had pre-designated that for this specific uh, data set, uh, if we think we're doing good, it's going to go up. And if it doesn't go up, that's that's uh, um, it is trending in the wrong direction. Doesn't mean the sky is going to fall, but it needs. But it's it's an indicator. And each one of those, we already knew exactly how to dial and, and tweak everything, um, and then just start collecting the data and start analyzing it to be able to understand. And in the in the briefings that I did on the hill, and when we would do our state of the border, you know, end of the year briefs, it was basically the function of three things. The first one was uh, the uh, the intelligence overview, right? And that was either uh, done uh, when we were able to at a classified setting. If, if not, it was in an unclassified setting. And what we did for Congress on a quarterly basis outside of the, the microphones and the cameras was to really show them that there was a way to uh, describe to the American public um, how we believed the border was secure and, and we had hard data to, to show. Um, because uh, absent anything... Um, that anybody else came up with in the federal government, we were going to continue to march forward to get more proficient and better at this. Um, and, and quite frankly, I don't want to outsource somebody telling the Border Patrol our mission and whether we were successful or not. So we spent a lot of time on it. So the picture that you've just painted, think back to you came in afterwards, me and Chief Chavez, and went from an organization to where our source of intel and how we conducted operations in the field was a few people in a muster going out to the field to relieve the previous unit and the previous unit passing on what they had seen or what, you know, yeah. what the groups that they had cut. It was right there what was in front of us, and that was about it. And the adversary, as we saw it, was just, as you said, the mom-and-pop groups that were coming across. Fast forward to what you just described, to all the analytics and all the predictive analysis and everything that goes into a much more complex adversary, a much more complex environment, a much larger organization in the United States Border Patrol, all of this in the space of 20, 25 years, that is, uh, that's extremely rapid. That's extremely fast when you think government organization and how fast it takes to grow right. and, and adapt. You played a big part of that. And it, I, I, I'm sure you are too. I'm very curious to see 25 years from now what the Border Patrol is going to look like and what the threat's going to look like. And that's one of the great things about being here at the Academy and graduating these uh, these new agents and, and seeing the, the enthusiasm and the motivation in their eyes and knowing they're going to take this organization and they're going to make it better, which is what we want. Sure. So you have them right now. They're listening to you and, and, the, and the men and women out in the field right now. Coming from what you've just seen today and all the things that you have done, and we could talk for hours about everything that, you, that you've uh, contributed to this organization. Any message you want to give to them? Yeah, just to continue to push push through um, self-fulfilling prophecies that others are going to set for them uh, because they're quote-unquote trainees or new to the organization, um, or they themselves may, um, you know, set for themselves because this may be, like in my case, a, a new area. Um, the only reason why a lot of this, and I, and I look back as we're having this conversation, um, and we haven't had really an opportunity, it's kind of new territory for me, and as I'm thinking about it, I mean, the whole thing... Um, I got a master's back back then I got um, when I was assigned as a new assistant chief I, I was assigned as part of the por portfolio um, among other things was the budget I was petrified 
um, I was barely able to balance my own checkbook. Now I was being put in charge. <laughs> I was put in charge um, of, a, of a sector's budget. And I said, and there was no, there was no course I could take. There was, there was nobody out there. Oh, don't worry, chief. The admin folks, um, you know, are here to take care of that. And, I, and, um, and, and so it's not that I didn't trust them. I, I needed to learn and understand. I, I can delegate, um, you know, responsibility to do the, the reports. I can never delegate the accountability. And so I wasn't getting a, a really, um, uh, let's just say, um, uh, confidence in, in, in what I was seeing and, and where our financial condition was and where the money was going. And so uh, it forced me. It was a force, another forcing function in my career uh, uh, to go back and get my graduate degree. And, and at that point, um, to me, what made sense was an MBA because I have to understand finance. I have to understand business. Um, it just so happened part of that three nights a week for three and a half years involved advanced statistics and um, mm. things that I would always shy away from, you know, because it was an elective. Now it wasn't an elective. Um, and, and then fast forward, I had the opportunity. And you talked about, well, this was a whole new way of, of you know, looking at statistics and, and the law enforcement. Yeah, but right about that same time period, and who did it probably in the, in the early 90s, uh, was Bill Bratton in New York. Right, mm-hmm. this whole ComStat, comparative statistics. I remember, you know, hearing about it. I don't know anything about it. Lo and behold, he's he's one of the guest speakers um, while I was at the JFK School of Government, um, and and that intrigued me. And and I had subsequently, after I uh, uh, finished, uh, graduated that program, um, I started doing panel discussions with him. And then I talked with uh, the author who was doing a book, one of the instructors at Harvard. Um, and he came out to the field in San Diego because he was adding as a case study because it had never been done at, at a large, you know, federal level. And so there were just, there were things that I couldn't have even, I couldn't have controlled that had shaped that, that, that perhaps put me in a position as these building blocks, um, not knowing it at the time as independent, as independent activities, put me in a position to, to be able to uh, think differently about some of the things that we just discussed. And but for those opportunities that I myself would have never <laughs> done on my own, by the way, right? Some petrified me, right? Oh my gosh, I'm an assistant chief in the busiest sector uh, in Tucson at the time and uh, in 2000 and 2001, 2002. And I'm barely seeing my family as it is. And I'm gonna decide on my own dime, I'm gonna go and get a graduate degree three nights a week. Um, but going back to what I was, you know, talking to the class about, those are those are decisions that you make that, you know, at the time it was it was more important to me um, at that moment in time that that I needed to really understand and do the best that I could as an assistant chief and understand the financial uh, um, operations and how uh, to to be effective for the mission and and for the sector and for the chief of the sector at that time to be able to. Um, you know, move forward, and and I, there was no other way that I saw at the time than than going back to school, and and that again, in each one of those, just kind of set uh, something in motion that that helped me think about things differently as as I promoted in the leadership positions. Because, and let's face it, uh, problem solving um, is is not uh, is not easy at times, um, but if you can if you can work with other people. And, and, and especially border patrol agents, you know, 
God love us, we're just so stubborn at times, right? When it comes to, you know, sign cutting or this and that, and trying to get them to, and you know, you, you put them through the academy here, and they go out there, and people are telling them, you know, how to drive and how to patrol and everything else. And all of a sudden, somewhere, um, probably at the uh, from the first to second, certainly the the third line supervisors, we expect them to become leaders. And we expect them to, you know, be visionary. We expect them to be innovative. And we expect them, are you kidding me? How do you do that? You just can't, you know, um, without hurting their brain, um, you know, plug them in somewhere and have them start changing something that institutionally we've told them how to think and how to do. And so that's a challenge even still to today. So, and, and like, you know, for you and, and for the other leaders as we had those discussions, and I remember, you know, some of those leadership discussions whether it was the strategy or thinking through some of these, um, you know, uh, different ways to analyze data, you know, and I know it was painful uh, uh, for the audience and, and it was painful for me. We talked earlier about, you know, just talking with Border Patrol agents as, as we did over the past day or two, you know, it drains you mentally and physically. In each one of those sessions, I mean, it was like, man, I just it's like felt like, do I have to go back there and have another one of those sessions? I don't <laughs> know if I can take it. And I start, you know, questioning because nobody's, you know, I'm not getting any, you know, love or, or joy feedback from this group. Am I, like, totally hosed with what I'm thinking about here? <laughs> so it was a process, too, um, and it's difficult, which is the reason why it's really hard to change an institution um, because of that self-preservation, because of that comfort zone, um, you know, and why it was so hard uh, to let people know that to trust us, changing uh, the strategy and changing apprehensions as our uh, leading metric for Gepper and everything. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay. Uh, but that was like, you know, it was like, you know, you, you have a kid and, 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 you know, they're by the side of the pool and, and you're treading water and you know, you, you put them in the water, you know, that they know it's not going to hurt them. Um, and you're out there saying, just jump, just trust me, right? You're okay. And, and you, they really want to do it, but there's something that's keeping their feet rooted <laughs> to the side of that pool, right? And you don't know how long you're going to be able to tread water because you're in deep water. Um, but at some point, they make that jump. And, and when that happens at the strategic and organizational level, I'll tell you, there, there is no better feeling of accomplishment, in my opinion, um, than to see that in motion. Chief, great career great individual. I hope that you continue to stay in orbit around the Border Patrol and, and, and keep coming back. I know we could talk for hours about all these things. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I, I have. have. Thank you for the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Everybody stay safe out there. Times are tough, but it continues to get better, and we continue to evolve to the threat. Stay safe out there. Honor first. <laughs>